What is the Xbox expansion pass? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, hello. Greetings. I am 343 Guilty Spark, monitor of Installation 04. Greetings to all of you reclaimers here on Xbox Expansion Pass. Hey, what's going on, guys? This is Tim DeDabo. Yes, this is my real voice. And yes, I would be there, but you blew me out of the sky. Congratulations on this, man. This is momentous. Almost 100 episodes of this. I can't believe it. Oh, I remember when I was 100, so very, very long ago. <laughs> Xbox Expansion. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 99 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, September 12th, 2021. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we speak with Megan Fox of Glass Bottom Games about their release of Skatebird onto the Switch, Steam, and Xbox, including a day-and-date Game Pass launch. After that, we'll draw comparisons and critiques after the PlayStation Showcase, examining just how that will impact the Xbox ecosystem. Oh, and it is official. Alan Wake is back. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as it pertains to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I am wont to do each and every week, I like to start the show by offering words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, the words of kindness go to Mr. Sean Capri of a thousand different shows, including the Xbox Drive, where I got my start in Xbox-specific podcasting. And on the eve of episode 100 of XEP, I think it's only best to reflect on the opportunity given by Mr. Capri to me on the Xbox Drive and some of the good memories I've had there. Uh, Teep of which, top of which, was a trip to E3 in 2019 where we got to see Gears 5, meet the team of Sea of Thieves, look at the team behind uh, Jedi Fallen Order, talk to them, and meet so many amazing people throughout the Xbox industry. We did some behind-closed-door events, getting to see 12 minutes very early in its production, and what an incredible time that was. Uh, and so the kind words are really words of thank you because it is what introduced me into the Xbox-specific podcasting world. I got to meet a number of great friends through Sean Capri, including my buddy Mr. Badbit, uh, including the late Bobby Pauls, and so many more. And it's just nice to think that uh, a friendship that started there went through plenty of trials and tribulations, including a time where we didn't speak, and now we're on great terms once again, has helped me to get to the eve of episode 100 of XEP and create content that I am very proud of. So that is a, a huge emotional boost for me as I think back to some of the many uh, good tidings that have had uh, have come rather of that relationship, of the great memories that have come, and the opportunities that are still in the future there. So Sean, cheers to you. Thank you to any and all people who are listening to XEP. Thank you to any and all who made the jump with me from Xbox Drive to XEP 99 episodes ago, and hopefully for many more to come. There's plenty to talk about in this week's episode. Let's get to it. Well, it was a quiet week of Xbox news. However, there was a lot of news that impacted the Xbox gaming ecosystem, and I do want to talk quite a bit about that as a result of the PlayStation Showcase, but a bit of housekeeping very quickly in that I initially thought that I was going to be having my Critzia Bios interview in this episode, but I thought it more prudent to have Megan Fox of Skatebird, which is launching this week onto Game Pass Day and Date, uh, and to Switch and Steam audiences as well. It made more sense to have Megan Fox of Glass Bottom Games talk about Skatebird and just what that launch meant to them, uh, because the game's coming out this week. And with Critzia's interview, one I'm very proud of and very much enjoyed, I thought that might uh, bet, perhaps better celebrate episode 100. So I'm going to sit on that one for another week and let you guys enjoy Glass Bottom Games. Uh, for any of you who are interested in Skatebird, it is, I've played it, 
and I don't think I can talk about it right now other than to say it is what you think, and I think you'll enjoy it. So we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that for that one. Uh, I am giving away a controller, perhaps even two, for episode 100, uh, and I will share with you how to enter that now. If you respond to the tweet, which has the Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube link with a picture of your iTunes review of XCP, then I will enter you into a contest to win a blue unopened Xbox Series X controller. Right now I'm sitting at 69 reviews Who on iTunes. If I get to 75, I will give away a second controller from Xbox Design Labs. So my goal is to get to 75, and I also want to pass on the goodness to anyone who's made an, uh, an iTunes review. It can be an iTunes review from episode 1 all the way through 99. It's okay if you have won contests before with that iTunes review. Really, I'm just trying to help get the word out there and celebrate you guys who are so great at listening to the show and supporting me. So cheers to that. All right. Let's rock with this PlayStation Showcase. Famous Seamus got me started right off the bat. He said, so how would you compare the Xbox E3 Showcase to the PlayStation Showcase from this week? Which do you think was the better show? Now, in many cases, questions like this can be used to pit different communities of gamers against one another. However, I am very familiar with Mr. Famous Seamus, and that is not at all what he is doing, nor is that something that we will do on this show. For anyone who is perhaps new to XEP, if this is your first episode or you're very early in discovering XEP, uh, we celebrate games in all places, and there is absolutely no reason why we can't play PlayStation games, celebrate Xbox games, etc., etc. I think of Xbox as my beat to cover, not necessarily one that I uh, fanboy over. However, I think it is fair to say I'm an Xbox fan, of course. That said, uh, let's talk briefly about this PlayStation Showcase before we answer Famous Seamus' question. I know there were a lot of mixed reactions on the showcase. I think that in my conversations on Cast Co-op with Ainsley Bowden of Season Gaming and Mr. Badbit of The Trophy Room, we were all very mixed about several of the announcements there, but we came away generally enthused, but perhaps not blown away. PlayStation did what it always does, and that's sell you on the future, and man oh man did they sell me on the future as a superhero fan when I looked at just what they're bringing to their release dates with Spider-Man 2, which will include Venom and Miles Morales uh, pitted against Kraven the Hunter and several more villains, of course. I really liked the trailer that they had there. And then we come to find out that Insomniac Games is also working on a Wolverine game in a shared universe. That is incredible. That is a long ways away. 2023 for Spider-Man at the earliest. I have to imagine 2024 for Wolverine. But there's a lot to be excited about in there when you consider the quality of games that Insomniac is producing. With Spider-Man, with Miles Morales, with Ratchet & Clank. And certainly you have to think that the next games will be on par with them. (laughs) It certainly also makes me think of, man oh man, Avengers. Whew. A lot of things done right about Avengers, a lot of things done or needing improvement, but Insomniac knocking it out of the park. And I know a lot of Xbox fans have messaged me over the past week asking how I felt about the idea that two superhero games, two Marvel superhero games, are now exclusive and gated behind the PlayStation community. I think my friend Charles Jones uh, was very upset uh, about that as well. And to you all I say... Consider the quality that Insomniac is producing games and allow that to guide you to buy a PlayStation in that respect. I fully agree that I hate when major third-party properties are locked behind first-party content. I, I think a lot of people are calling for Batman to be Xbox exclusive. I don't endorse that thought. That said, it can't be understated just how absent a superhero game is in the Xbox ecosystem. But in the case of Insomniac, because they produce such quality, I think we can forgive them uh, or forgive perhaps our our frustrations in that at the very least we know we're going to get a very high quality game from them. It's not like you're taking a risk on an Insomniac game at this point. You know it's going to be top tier quality and very few studios can you say that about. You could say that about perhaps Rocksteady. Respawn and Insomniac. You know that every single time they're going to knock it out of the park and deliver what fans want. So, you know, am I frustrated by that superhero exclusivity? Yes, but as a diehard superhero and comic book fan, I must have a PlayStation to get the best experiences. And uh, that's something that Xbox themselves is going to have to contend with. 
regarding the specific aspects of the PlayStation Showcase that also stood out to me. The KOTOR remake, Knights of the Old Republic, a previous Xbox exclusive on the original Xbox when it launched, is now being remade by Asper Media, and it will be a console launch exclusive for PlayStation. It will also launch onto PC. You have to note that because it was an Xbox exclusive and PlayStation now can put it at the top of their show, there is something there that is, at the very least, eyebrow-raising. Why was KOTOR not approached or... uh, scalped by xbox we don't know if there was a deal in place we don't know if there was a deal pitched by any of the two makers but it does raise the eyebrow in that a previous xbox exclusive is now on a playstation stage and launching console specifically over there on the playstation instead of the xbox where it originally made its debut it is also being remade by asper media which doesn't necessarily invoke a ton of confidence with me perhaps that is uh part of the the hesitation on xbox's part and again this is all presumed and assumed things and we know what assuming can do for us so i do want to take everything here with a grain of salt i am making conjecture in that respect however with it being made by asper media i think i'm a little more timid on the idea that this game is going to be great but everybody that speaks about knights of the old republic who played it in its prime this was bioware's best work many people say and it was made at a time where uh, bioware was among the best story crafters of all time also people think that this is one of the star wars best star wars games of all time sadly i missed it in its time i did not have an original xbox and it does not age well i went back tried to play a bit of it and it just does not age well so i myself am very interested in this remake but i'm also interested in the stories behind how it's getting made how it's getting debuted how and we do know that it will make its way to xbox at some point Beyond that, PlayStation also showed God of War Ragnarok, some pretty impressive stuff there. And uh, let's see what else might be noted. Ah, yes, Gran Turismo 7 will be launching in March. Now, this makes for a really cool showdown of Xbox and PlayStation debut games uh, over the next few months, starting in November with Forza Horizon 5. That's in November Halo Infinite is in December, and then you've got Horizon Forbidden West in February, and Gran Turismo 7 in March. Those are four console-exclusive heavy hitters and a racing game for each, and a major, major exclusive for each. There's going to be a lot of talk surrounding those, but I will tell you what, multi-console owners, you are in for a treat. I'm very interested to see just how they play out. I do think comparing Horizon Forbidden West and Halo Infinite is a bit apples and oranges given the style of games that they are, But this is Microsoft's opportunity with Halo Infinite to say that we can make a game on par with a Horizon Forbidden West, with a Spider-Man, a Ghost of Tsushima, a God of War, etc. And it will only take one of those caliber games to help combat this PlayStation uh, dominance in the double and pardon me in the triple and quad A categories. Because I think it's fair to say that Xbox has struggled in the triple and quad A categories by comparison to PlayStation First Party. That is not to say that their games aren't incredible, nor is it to say that I don't enjoy them at at their peak. I mean, I I very much prefer the the Xbox lineup myself, but when we're talking about the masses, that's something to consider. Back to this PlayStation Showcase, one of the big things is that Alan Wake Remastered is officially revealed. We talked in last week's episode that there were some leaks from the Taiwanese outlet. It has been officially revealed. Again, another Xbox exclusive making its return debut in the PlayStation Showcase. You have to think this was a conscious decision by PlayStation to do it. Another eyebrow-raising moment for for Remedy to choose to go PlayStation's route. But it is a multi-console game. It is debuting on October 5th and it will be $30 both digital and physical. This is so exciting for me. Alan Wake is back. I really loved that game back in its heyday, and I'm very curious to see just how well it's aged. This news got me so hyped that I jumped back into control, both the original Xbox One and the Ultimate Edition Series X version, and I want to make a quick commentary, like a little side venture here to talk about that. I went back to my original save of Control on Xbox One because it doesn't carry over into Series X, and I played the Alan Wake expansion, which was uh, a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. But the Xbox One version of Control, even on a Series X, is 
it's rough. It's hard to play. It's hard to play, and it's especially hard to play after booting up the Control Ultimate Edition, which is a sublime experience. Now, I am first to say that I did not like how this Ultimate Edition rolled out. I was not a fan of the way they did it. They completely ignored Smart Delivery and certainly overcharged it at $40. However, they did do an on-sale thing for $20, which is how I got it. And I got to tell you, I'm having an absolute blast in Control Ultimate Edition right now, particularly given the context of having played it before and knowing that Alan Wake is on his way to a return. There's a lot more in this world that I missed the first time around because I was struggling with gameplay issues. Playing this at 60 frames per second in quality mode is wonderful, and the engine is just so impressive to see. This is how Control was meant to be played. So I will urge any and all of you to go back to control, if you're going to play it, play it on a Series X version. Play the Ultimate Edition. Play it on PS5 if that's where you play. But man, oh man, it has been a pleasure to dive back into that. And I am loving, loving my experience and experiences uh, in that world once again. It's fantastic. So, so te- check that out, particularly if you plan on checking out Alan Wake. <laughs> For all that I've said at this point, it's been meant to provide context to Famous Seamus' question of who's had the better experience, the better showcase, uh, Xbox at its E3 showcase or PlayStation in its showcase from this past week, which for all intents and purposes, I think served the same central idea here. And Famous Seamus and to anyone else wondering, I think when you take a step back and you look at the two showcases side by side, Xbox did a better job at having consistent quality throughout its show, whereas the PlayStation Showcase had much higher peaks and much lower valleys of the two. As a superhero fan, I loved the PlayStation Showcase. There was a lot to see there um, with with Spider-Man 2, the excitement of Wolverine. Seeing the KOTOR remake was eyebrow-raising. Seeing Alan Wake was wonderful. God of War Ragnarok, give it to me, put it in my veins. Not much one for Gran Turismo 7, but I love the showdown between Forza Horizon 5 and whatnot. But when you look at the Xbox showcase, that to me has more quality uh, from, from start to finish than the PlayStation showcase. There were a lot of lulls in the PlayStation showcase. All the games I've talked about have been... Uh, really of note, but there were a lot of lulls in there for me, like Project Eve and Tachia and a few others that didn't speak to me as a gamer. Whereas when you look at the PlayStation, excuse me, the Xbox showcase from this past uh, holiday, not holiday, E3, look at me slurring my words there, you've got Starfield, Redfall, Stalker 2, Back for Blood, Contraband, the Jack Sparrow expansion into Sea of Thieves, uh, Battlefield 2042, 12 Minutes, Psychonauts 2, Fallout 76 and Elder Scrolls Online both had content there. You had the Hades announcement that it was going to be launching into uh, the Xbox ecosystem. Somerville, Halo Infinite showed up once again. Diablo 2 Remastered. Far Cry 6 made an appearance, which I guess doesn't... I mean, that's been everywhere at this point. Slime Slime Rancher 2, Atomic Heart. Shredders looked awesome. Uh, Replaced made its... uh, show up there among us and grounded both had content and, and the list goes on the ascent and age of empires 4 Out, outer worlds 2 flight simulator forza horizon 5 that is a lot that is a whole lot to be happening over on one showcase for e3 and xbox so there's a lot to look forward to and i think we all forget it we look at the most recent thing and have a bit of recency bias a lot of people are very high on on playstation right now i'm wondering oh what is xbox going to do to counter it And that truly is not how many of these things work. Xbox has an incredible slate coming up, as does PlayStation. I think we know PlayStation's future future titles are are much further out, whereas with Xbox, uh, maybe some of those things that are really far out are unknown quantities. I'm thinking about Avowed. I'm thinking about Fable. I'm thinking about uh, Starfield. We don't know much about those games, whereas we know what to expect from a Wolverine and a Spider-Man and a God of War. So there's a bit of expectation bias in there as well. So again, to recap, I think top to bottom, Xbox had the much better showcase this year, but PlayStation's highs reached a bit higher than perhaps the valleys that 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 showcase also took us also worth noting that we have the benefit of hindsight when it comes to halo infinite that showed pretty darn well at xbox e3 but we also have a beta under our belts to know that that delivered 
and that's very impressive. There's also a beta for Halo Infinite coming up uh, starting on the, I want to say the 24th of September. I don't have that one right in front of me, but that's exciting for a lot of people. As a non-beta person, someone who doesn't really chase the betas, I think I'm going to be entered into this one because I'm an, a Halo insider. And for anybody that needs to check those boxes, go do it because everybody that is a Halo insider will get to play it. It's very easy to sign up for. So if time allows, I will play Halo Infinite this time, but I am not typically one to chase a beta. Like I jumped into Back for Blood very briefly when it was an open beta, knew what I was getting and jumped out. I tend to stick with what's truly available versus beta stuff. But I mean, it's Halo Infinite, it's free and it's right there. I don't have to do any work for it. That's a little bit different in my mind. Oh goodness, I feel like my voice is fading. Like I'm not fading, but my voice is starting to die out. Uh, before we get to listener mail, I did want to make a quick note as well. Riftbreaker, a game that we have spotlighted by having Piotr Bomak from Exer Studios on episode 88. And that's officially coming into Game Pass on October 14th. That's a game I'm very excited for. Uh, really fun kind of top-down strategy game reminiscent of Halo Wars in some ways, and I'm, I'm stoked for that one. That's hitting on April October 14th, which I'm excited to. Uh, and if you do want to check out the interview with Piotr Bomak, that's on episode 88. But now for listener mail. We have the incredible Artur Gaming writing in and seeing, he's saying, lots of talk of Xbox needing a Marvel licensed game, but does it? And what are the gaps in the Xbox catalog? Superhero, fighter, mascot game, I'm thinking about Astrobot PS5, or does it just need games to be good regardless of genre? Artur, that is a wonderful question with a lot to to kind of delve into. As far as Xbox needing a Marvel-licensed game, I don't know that it needs to be Marvel-specific, but it is certainly very noted now that PlayStation has superhero games and Xbox does not have a console-specific superhero game. Of course, the Arkham games and Gotham Knights and Suicide Squad Killed the Justice League are all set to debut, but those are third-party titles. I think it's so notable then it stands out in our minds because PlayStation has this wonderful stranglehold and terrible stranglehold on Marvel games right now. For God's sakes, even the third-party Avengers has an exclusive character that is beloved in Spider-Man who will only be available on PlayStation. That's terrible. But Microsoft also has a relationship with Disney, which owns Marvel, of course. They've got the Indiana Jones license. They've got Sea of Thieves content that is Disney-specific uh, with Pirates of the Caribbean. You'd have to think a relationship does exist there somewhere. Yes, they do need to have something to kind of combat that mentality of a superhero genre, but I doubt that they could secure Arkham or Batman, Gotham Knights, whatever it is, um, as a console exclusive, particularly with WB's woes in terms of money and Batman being such a deliverable superhero and piece of content. Uh, it just stands out as so prominent. Now, something that occurred to me in watching the Matrix Resurrections trailer, how amazing would it be to have a console-specific Matrix game? We think about the quality that Enter the Matrix and Path of Neo had, the potential quality that they had, and the potential that there is in the future with these current-gen systems, playing games like Control, playing games that uh, really accentuate martial arts of late and gun gunplay. You'd have to think that a Matrix game would do rather well. The green does sell it, sell it very comfortably. It would be a comfortable fit there. And I know that sounds cheesy, but it's easy marketing. WB may be more open to giving a Matrix game some exclusivity, particularly with them trying to rebirth the Matrix franchise, than, say, a Batman. I think you could do a lot with a Matrix license. Uh, and then within the superhero world, there's plenty of games or, or heroes that could be explored. Superman is always peak of everybody's list for can we make a good Superman game? Imagining a good Superman game on Xbox, that would be surprising, I think, because Superman is such a difficult character to create a game for. But also, and more interestingly, uh, there are plenty of other heroes. Green Arrow, Daredevil, Blade, Punisher... Lots of people have thrown those superheroes around. Love to see what could happen with a Wonder Woman game, um, kind of exploring that Greek pantheon of, of combat. There are plenty of heroes that you could tackle here, maybe some lesser-known ones, you know, maybe maybe turn some eyes to it. I'd love to see what Blade would look like in the hands of a good studio with Blade making a return. And with we know for a fact the X-Men are and the Fantastic Four are both on Marvel's slate of films coming up over the next few years. Why not try to take advantage of that? 
Wolverine is console specific, but X-Men, perhaps not. There might be ways for Xbox to explore that. But make no mistake, Xbox and Microsoft need to start making those third-party deals. They've done a fantastic job with services, with hardware, and with acquiring studios to make console-specific games of high quality. But they also need to show a willingness to cut the deals that PlayStation consistently shows. PlayStation with exclusive Destiny content, Call of Duty content, Spider-Man, Insomniac stuff, cutting deals with Marvel. It's time for Microsoft to show they're willing to do the same thing. Gone should be the days where you overpay for Rise of the Tomb Raider. But it's time now to make those third-party deals and show that you're willing to spend in that respect. They've done a lot for the Xbox community. We must give them due credit for it. But we do need to do more on the front of showing that we're willing to cut deals to fill interim gaps and make sure that the community doesn't feel left out of anything. It will also help alleviate that pain once they start delivering those triple quad A uh, type games. And Halo Infinite perhaps could be the first one to do that. We'll see. Uh, as far as the other aspect of your question, gaps within their catalog, yes, you are correct. A mascot game is absolutely lacking. Uh, they very much need a mascot game, something that appeals to that group. I think Psychonauts 2 is multi-platform, and people don't think of it as Xbox, even though it is made by Double Fine, which is now an Xbox game studio. I also think they now have studios to address that particular thing, and we don't know if one is in the works. A lot of people will point to Banjo-Kazooie with Rare. I think that is... A cult favorite type thing. I don't think as many people love Banjo as they might say they do. Um, but we do see Banjo reemerging with Smash DLC uh, and perhaps showing up in other places. We also know Double Fine and Rare, neither one of them is interested in making a Banjo game. So maybe we hold off on jumping down that road. And as far as a fighter goes, they certainly have the catalog to do it. But, I mean, it's not like there's a PlayStation-specific fighter. PlayStation All-Stars is over, overdone, and I think Street Fighter V is long past its prime. But, uh, you know, I mean, sure, maybe. I'd love to see an Xbox fighter. I've talked about that many times. The idea of Doom Guy fighting Fallout Guy or Master Chief, dude, I'm in. I'm in on that, for sure. Let's see, the last question that we'll tackle this week before we get to our interview with Glass Bottom Games and Megan Fox. Uh, Dano says, do you ever think that games can be shown too much or too often before release? How would you prefer a game be marketed or hyped? So Dano, absolutely. We've seen too much of many games uh, of late. Deathloop, we've seen too much of. Far Cry 6, too much of. Uh, and I'm just sick of it at this point. Once a game has sold me, I'm tired of seeing it. Uh, and that is always specific per person. Uh, as far as it being marketed or hyped, I need to know what the game is, what type of gameplay to expect, and reassured of the quality of that game. And that helps me make an informed purchasing decision. If the game is going to be of AA quality, I like when it knows that, acknowledges it, and shows it in its coverage. I do not like when I see all CGI trailers, you know, two months before launch. Think about Call of Duty Vanguard right now. That game I was never interested in. And it made me less interested when I saw the coverage of it. So that's kind of an interesting aspect there. Deathloop, we saw too much of it. Far Cry 6, too much. Um, but other games we haven't seen enough of. Halo Infinite is currently one of those games because we have so many questions about the changes it's gone through. And it looks like that stuff is down to the wire in terms of marketing. But Joseph Staten and that team have said they are focused on making the game as opposed to slicing out pieces for demos or for coverage or making trailers, which I appreciate the logic in that as well. Good question, Dano. All right, guys, that's going to be it. We're going to roll you now to an interview with Megan Fox of Glass Bottom Games. I hope you enjoy it. I will give you a quick content warning. Megan swears a couple times, and that's a little atypical for XEP. There is not enough in there for me to throw an explicit warning on the show, but if you got kids in the car, uh, there is one or two maybe two F-bombs in there, uh, and drops the S-bomb here and there as well. Again, that doesn't bother me. I doubt it bothers most of you guys, but because XEP is typically non-explicit, I wanted to let you know, just in case you got little Johnny Susie uh, or anybody else in the car with you, if you got your grandma, hey, grandma, goodness gracious, you smell funny. You're weird. All right, guys, that's it for me. Please take advantage of the opportunity to win a controller from me. Uh, drop an iTunes review, snap a picture, and tweet it at me in the response to this episode, this week's episode of the show. I would love to see a couple of those and help me get up to 75 reviews over on iTunes. That's it for me. Take care, everybody.
Alrighty, guys, I am very fortunate now to welcome the founder and lead developer for Glass Bottom Games, Megan Fox. Megan, thank you for joining me on the show. Hello. I am ecstatic to have you here. We have you here to talk about Skatebird, a game that I believe so many people have been following at this point, myself included. Uh, tell me about the wild ride uh, since people found out about Skatebird. How has that gone for you? Uh, it's been kind of weird. Like the whole point of Skatebird back in twenty, like late twenty eighteen, just finished mm -hmm. Spartan Fist. It was a commercial bomb. Had to let everyone go. It's like, okay, shit. What game can I make as just me and Nathan doing music? It's like, oh, you know, there's, there's this friend working on this cool prototype that I could maybe take over, and it just it's got little junky problems, but you know, it'll be fun. Make this cute little Skatebird game, and then I announced it at the end of twenty eighteen. And well, hey, there's. Some interest. Wow, that's surprising. Maybe I can kickstart this for twenty thousand dollars, and I'll have enough budget. And then E three happened, and then the VGAs happened at the end of twenty nineteen. It's like Jesus, it was just supposed to be little, and it's just kind of gotten bigger since then. So yeah, kind of wild. That is kind of wild, and we're going to touch on that ascension into attention. I think that you're <laughs> getting at this point. But first, uh, tell me a bit. Glass Bottom Games, founded in 2011, is that correct? Sounds about right. Founded in 2011, and what was it that brought the studio together and your journey towards, you said, letting everyone go? Um, talk to me about the, the increment time in between those two before we get to Skatebird. Well, let's see. We I used to work for a company called, well, it was called NetDevil, and then it was called part of the gazillion family or whatever the fuck that was. And then it got bought out by Lego and was called Playwell Studios, working on Lego Universe. Lego Universe shuttered. They let all of us go. Great. Lego's a great company to work for, by the way. I have no no bad feelings. They took good care of us. So that gave me a, enough of a launch to start my own studio. Started with the idea that I was going to do like, you know, publisher funded games and that kind of thing. Brought Dennis Dryden, one of the people that was worked with me at Lego on. And we did like nine failed prototypes. Nothing went anywhere and I had to let them go. And then it was just me. So then from just me, it was like, oh, I'll go down to this game jam for Colorado Wildfire fundraising. And I made a game called uh, Jones on Fire, which was supposed to have other animals, but it ended up just having cats because I ran out of time. And then that game I gave to a friend, and they told me that their kids kept stealing their phone to play it because they liked the kitty noises. So then that turned into me making a mobile game, Johnson Fire, which did, like, from my perspective, it did terribly, but for a first-time mobile developer, it apparently did pretty well. Mm -hmm. Then from there, I went to PC with Hot Tin Roof which was my first Kickstarter, well, my technically my second Kickstarter, my first successful Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where things really got started. I was able to just work with uh, Michael Nielsen, had done music on uh, Jones on Fire, and then he came on to do design for Hot Tin Roof. We had a couple more artists, again, from uh, Lego Days on there. And that got, I don't know, decently big for 2014 or whatever it was. Then my mom died, and that development got scratched, stretched out and <laughs> came out just barely with enough money to make it happen. And that did not great at market, so again, just kind of floundering at that point. But mm -hmm. we start, we'd been at that point experimenting with Unreal Engine for a next game, and by, being, by dint of being a studio in Colorado that was working on Unreal Engine and experimenting with VR... We got a contract for uh, a security company that I can't talk about because of NDA, but like it was cool, and I got to do some cool shit that I'll never get to talk about, which sucks, but you know, that's a bummer. Paid really well, <laughs> and then that was how we funded Spartan Fist, and I put way too much into Spartan Fist. I should have done my uh, biz analytics better, but I was still not didn't quite know what I was doing with that. Mm -hmm. So that came out was a total bomb, like it should have been projected, but again, I screwed up and had to let everyone go. And then again, it was just, oh, well, shit, what the fuck can I do with just me? And then, you know, that's where the skateboard story, skateboard stories picks up. Man, it sounds like you ran the gauntlet of indie <laughs> trauma for, for I, development there. I mean, it's kind of how it goes. Everyone who's been running a studio for 
this long has some stories of failure or collapse or whatever. It's like you you get to be a studio running this long by somehow continuing to move forwards since it's going to happen. Some stuff's going to happen. That's there's a very good reason why most indie studios wash out after, you know, one, maybe two games. It's just mm-hmm. hard. Well, when you initially came up with the idea for Skatebird, you had to have been in an odd place, having just let everyone go after Spartan Fist, learning a lot of lessons about the industry. Uh, you talked about failed prototypes. It sounds like, at least projecting-wise, and the, the, ma- the amount of attention you have on Skatebird and the vibe that it has, which I'm so excited to talk about, it sounds like uh, this is a very different version of you than started in the gaming industry. Is that correct to, to, to make that assumption? Oh, uh, yeah, pretty much. Like whenever I, back whenever I was, even before I started uh, Glass Bottom Games, I'd been talking with the, Scott was the founder of um, NetDevil, who I, who was my boss. Talked mm-hmm. to him, you know, getting advice for how to, how the hell do I do, et cetera, et cetera. Talked with um, Kelly Santiago took one of, took a call with me, which was like, I was nobody at that point, which was fun. By the way, if you don't know who Kelly Santiago is, she was one of the found, basically Google her. She's worked on a lot of games you've heard of probably, but yeah. Um, so that kind of directed me towards doing it the traditional way at first of trying to get a publisher deal and build things up. The problem with doing things that way is you need to have a standing team because to pitch a game for a budget that's going to require eight people, you're mm-hmm. not pitching and I'll go out to hire the team. You're pitching for, I have the team here ready to go, which puts you on this course of, you need to have a standing team to work on the game to get the money, but that team tends to be more than you actually need to make the game since your staffing needs go up and down over the course of a project. So you tend to bring on more contract work to justify those extra helpers. That contract work tends to eventually enter this case where it keeps the scale keeps going up. So mm-hmm. either you hire to take the, the the more contract work to give you a better foothold, or you tend to lose the contract work. So it's this whole thing where if you go that route, your studio tends to naturally expand in ways that make it over time really unsustainable. And it's the, mm-hmm. the term is golden handcuffs. There are deals out there that you can follow like this, but they tend to lock you into this really specific way of working and Usually those studios die whenever, well, now you have like, in my case, 11, but they can go way higher. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like you can have 100 people. You eventually get to the point where your uh, monthly salary costs are so high that if you miss your next deal and can't slap it down in time, you've got maybe like a month or two or three of savings, and then your Mm -hmm. savings evaporates and you have to let everyone go. And Mm -hmm. that timing just gets too tight and you eventually die. So... The way I ended up operating of indie, tiny, Kickstarter, uh, really, really, really small team and trying to avoid full-timers and instead working with other indies and coming together for a game. I do a lot of rev share. I don't just rev share. I also pay people. But like, mm-hmm. I tend to think that it's important that if you're doing a collaboration, you tend to want to do rev share if you can, though other people disagree with me. There's other ways of making it equitable. But the point is more equitable arrangements than the traditional employer-employee relationship. By going that way, I'm able to keep a really, really, really small core team, which means I can keep burning longer on less money. And also it helps that I'm like, I have very low standards. I I pay myself uh, like for a while it was 1500 a month and it was 1850 a month. And I was a little bit higher, but like, if you look at what I actually make a year, it's like maybe 40,000 if you're lucky. And that's after accounting for tax. It's like, I, I don't really pay myself well. And that means that I'm a lot cheaper than if I was to hire a programmer, like mm-hmm. a lot, a lot cheaper. So that way of operating is how I've survived this long, just because by keeping costs low, I'm able to burn longer on less money and survive things that would otherwise have catastrophically ended the studio, which still almost happened multiple times. It's just I managed to squeak by. That begs the question, then, why keep doing it? Is it the love of the art? Is it the the vision of Skatebird specifically? Is it a wanting to avoid AAA development studios or whatnot? Well, I don't really... Well, first of all, if I wanted to work in AAA, I'd need to move somewhere else. And mm-hmm. also, AAA specifically is pretty ageist. At my age, mm-hmm. like I'm, a, I, I don't mean to sound old. I'm like barely, I'm not even 40 yet, but still, when you reach around 40, the expectation AAA is that you're a manager or above. 
Mm -hmm. like a team lead at the very least. And when you reach 50, either you're founding a studio or you're out on your ass. Like they're really ageist and people tend to age out of that industry pretty fast. So it's not a great idea for a lot of reasons. Also, as you've probably seen in news lately, there's a lot of work-life balance bullshit that happens at AAA that is just, I can't really recommend it. And I think it's gotten worse over time. Well, I, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's gotten worse over time. It's certainly gotten more visible over time. And there have always been studios that were better than others. It's mm -hmm. just it was really hard to tell ahead of time if you were at one of those studios. And if you got a job that wasn't at one of those studios, well, you probably can't afford to change jobs quickly. So you're just stuck there for a couple of years. And suffice it to say, I am not interested in being part of that rat race. Mm -hmm. Also, I just don't find it creatively fulfilling to be like uh, – even on Lego Universe, which was for AAA, a pretty small team, and even mm -hmm. as a graphics programmer, which is in AAA, one of the more visible roles, since you work on everything that's you know visible. Sure. I worked on a lot of stuff that was that was defining for the series, like Hour of the Game. I worked on a really pretty water shader that everyone saw because every level was surrounded by water. I worked on optimization shit. I worked on the tech that lets you do levels like the uh, plaza, the not the plaza, the tower at the end, Nexus Tower. I don't know, kids. People who mm -hmm. were kids that played it might remember the name. If you're listening, hi. It's the <laughs> last. It's one of the bigger levels. The tech I made made that possible. But still, it's not like I had any creative uh, attachment to that. I was just making cool tech. So right. even at the best case, AAA tends to not be very creatively fulfilling. Whereas what I'm doing now, I got to make a game with a skateboard, a skateboarding bird, which is pretty cool. And yeah, so it's more interesting. Now, do I? specifically have a drive to make games about skateboarding birds no do i specifically have a drive to make skateboarding games not really do i have a specifically drive to make bird games well probably i do like birds and that's probably what i'll do next time but even that <laughs> like eventually it'll be something else it's more just making games i enjoy making games i enjoy making games in a way that i have creative input i enjoy making things that people haven't seen before or at least different takes on things people haven't seen before and as you work for larger and larger studios, well, you're increasingly going to be working on HD reboots or reboot series or something with a two after it, or <laughs> at the very least, a very heavily genre-defined game where if you have a question of what to do next, well, you look at the game you're based on, you just do that again. Like, it gets more and more narrow the higher by the budget you go. So I really like the creative challenges offered by working in the budgetary space I'm in now. And it turns out that if I scaled my budget up like even a little bit, it would sh quickly shoot out of this range. Like uh, where I'm working right now, we've got a core team of uh, five on Skatebird. And of course, we've mm -hmm. got a wider expanded team. But if you look at the core, if you go, and most of that, and that's just me, well, it's me full-time and Zalave is like full-time for their studio. And then Alex is not full-time, but their work is really important. And Sarah is mostly full-time, but came on only a year ago. And Nathan is music and sort of is full-time, but sort of not like this isn't his gig this is his side gig but he's been here since the beginning so it's hard to define so like we don't like have five full-time people it's probably like two or three full-time people it's worth of time somewhere around there if you go much past that budget wide at all you get into this weird uh kind of snowballing thing where the next logical uh, team size and budget size tends to be like 11 people and then you're pitching budgets that are an order of magnitude larger at the very least Mm -hmm. And that radically changes your uh, risk layouts and what you can and can't afford to do and the kind of games you can do and how you're going to fund those games and who your partners are going to be and the terms of the deals you sign. Like, it's a very different thing. And then usually once you're that size, the same thing that happens with contracting studios that do work for hire, which is uh, the best example I can give is all of the people that are currently working on Star Citizen other than the focal studio that's is, is an example of work for hire and that's like most of the industry right now their credits are going to be huge but still that kind of thing is work for hire and once you not even not in that even if you just have a studio of around 11 that snowballing thing where your your budget tends to grow over time your team size tends to grow over time it tends to apply there too so if you hit 11 well you're probably going to be 20 within a couple of years and then you're going to keep going from there. And then it, you kind of got to reboot the studio or you run out of runway and you flare out. Like, it's hard to do any of that stably at the budget and team size that I'm at. Collaborating like I do, I've been able to do this for a decade uninterrupted. Uh, not many studio structures let you do that. So 
That's a really long-winded answer, but I like the creative challenges posed by the industry, and I like the structure I'm able to have in my relationship to the work that I'm able to have with uh, games of this size specifically, which is somewhere in that, like we're, we're a tiny indie team-wise, but I think people think of us as a big indie because of what Skatebird's doing. I seriously doubt the next game's going to have as much social impact, but that space, however you want to define that, is where I tend to find the most of interest. Well, there's a lot of social impact happening, I think, for a lot of different reasons when it comes to Skatebird. Initially revealed at, I believe it was Kind of Funny's E3 back in 2019. I, I want to say that's right. That was um, the and- Kickstarter? We, we actually unveiled it in the Christmas before that in 2018, but it was a much okay. smaller, not as many people saw. The E3 okay. is everyone actually knew. Ah, I see. All right. Well, th- since then, I mean, uh, we find out that it's coming to more platforms, Switch and Xbox uh, One at the time, which now is just Xbox, uh, which is kind of cool mm-hmm. to, to think about. There's a lot more spotlight on it for anybody that's looking, and we're talking about the social impact of it, Anyone that's looking is going to see Tony Hawk, uh, or as my friend required I say to you, Toby Squawk, um, <laughs> which I'm sure you've heard before already. Uh, so you got this Tony Hawk looking game, except it's a bird. But anybody that puts on headphones or turns up the volume is hearing this relaxing jazz type just melody that's very calming. And then to find out that you're playing through your owner's worlds, as it were, is that there, there's a lot to this that I would not have thought. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, as to why that, so like the music, the reason we're doing that is uh, we're, for lack of a better genre term, call it lo-fi bird hop to skateboard to. Whatever Let's say that, that is, again. What? <laughs> lo-fi, lo-fi bird hop to skateboard too. Bird hop. Got it. G- got and it. Okay. Cool. 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 The reason we're doing this is, uh, it's well, it's a musical style informed by SoundCloud, rap, and jazz, and funk to some extent. Um, I don't know where it falls really. Like, if you listen to SoundCloud rap, they tend to be more sample based, and a lot of our tracks are more heavily sample based, but it's kind of drifted in more of a funk jazz direction over time. So, I don't know, somewhere in that SoundCloud rap, hip hop, rap, RB, whatever, you know, that area. Why we're doing that is because, like, if we had lifted skate, uh, Tony Hawk aesthetics, we would have been using um, punk music, probably punk from the 90s. Specifically, people would have expected Goldfinger. We can't afford Goldfinger, so it would have been. Glorbflinger doing the not totally the same music, but clearly inspired by if we were trying to channel that. The problem with that is that that's only resonant with people that played Tony Hawk or were that age in the 90s. So the audience we would have attracted wouldn't have been current skaters. It would have been people who played Tony Hawk in the 90s and had very, very specific opinions about what a skate game should be. They would want a very narrowly defined uh, Tony Hawk Plus Plus, which realistically already exists, is called Thug Pro. It's really cool. Go play it, by the way, if you haven't tried it. It's very neat. Um, but that really wasn't the game we wanted to make. And also, the whole point of this is to try and introduce people to modern skate culture. And modern skate culture is more informed by SoundCloud rap being one of them, hip hop, R&B, a little bit of jazz, but not so much. But that's the kind of music that you hear if you're if you're looking at a kid, a skateboarding kid or a young adult. That tends to be the music that they put to their their own tracks, their, their own videos. Mm-hmm. You see a, a little bit of variance where, I, I feel like if whenever Woodward makes videos, they pick the music sometimes, which is an older guy who played Tony Hawk, and then you end up getting the classic punk. But uh, it usually is more SoundCloud rap era. And that's more modern skate culture, and that's what we wanted to try and channel here, since in the same way Tony Hawk was a lot of people's introduction to skate culture, like me. I was a pasty nerd at the time, and this was mm-hmm. how I got into skate and punk and the culture surrounding that. It was my first exposure and still was most of my exposure for most of my childhood and lifetime. We're hoping that in some way we can be a bridge to modern skate culture for people that maybe haven't been exposed to that yet, which meant we needed to ground it in both actual skateboarding, which is why the trick names are all accurate, and I've tend, tend to try to simulate things as accurate as possible, even though you're a skateboarding bird, and making sure the music style and vibe was right. Though that's just the original music. The licensed music, which is from Illicit Nature, We Are the Union, Grave Danger, and Holy Wow, mostly the first three, uh, is 
essentially kind of a mixture of what people tended to think of Tony Hawk music. Like we've got punk in there, we have a lot of ska, and we have surf rock. I still don't know how to classify Grave Danger, but kind of a goth surf rock. Also, Holy Wow is chiptune. <laughs> so if you, for some reason, don't like the uh, lo-fi bird hop to skateboard too, you can unlock and find tracks that may be more to your liking. And we're hoping people kind of settle on, like if they like one kind of music and they don't like another, okay, just turn off that and turn on this and there you go. But I'm, it, it kind of throws a wide net, but the focus is still meant to be on the original music, which is like, again, channeling current skate culture. Mm -hmm. And as far and as the... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, please continue. Oh. <laughs> and as far as the level design goes, yeah, you're running around in miniaturized versions of worlds, and there's a lot of cozy vibes that come from that. Like, it's there's something relaxing about just skating around in a space that makes you feel small. And we're trying to tell a story that even small, even small people can make big changes, and sometimes they might not know what they're doing or know why what they're doing will have the outcomes it does. And that is more about just trying your best and seeing what happens. Tell me about the idea of using a bird in, in the environments that we've got, because that to me is just this surreal idea, and yet it looks so good. It's got it's reminiscent of micro machines. It's reminiscent mm -hmm. of uh, I want to think like my, my green little army dudes from army men back in the day. And yet I'm skating around people's offices. Well, part of it's just vibes. It's just, it's cool. And if you're, tr if we're trying to create a chill space, that's, I mean, there, there is a story mode. I fully expect some people will play the game through and quit it when they're done. And that's like five to eight hours. And yeah, you know, that's fine. If that's what you want to do. But there is a lot of space designed for just sandbox play, just skating around and, chilling out and i'm hoping that the environments presented will work well with the music to create a space that is nice to occupy but as far as the why uh, it kind of comes about because like i said way back we started with a prototype by kev kev or dirk heaven on twitter you've probably seen one of their videos before if you've seen people riding around on office chairs with full automatic machine guns doing grinds or riding ramps that's kev kev and it's a uh, Last Man Sitting, by the way, if you're looking for a specific thing to Google. One of his, he's done like 3 million prototypes, and he tends to abandon them because often they have horrible flaws. One of those failed prototypes was his like Revision Zero skateboarding engine. I think he's on Revision 3 now. And it had this cool, fully physical skateboard model. But the major problem was, well, aside from it being kind of janky and rough and really only looking cool in very narrow circumstances, was that it was super hard to put a human on. Like the skateboard itself moved accurately, but trying to make an arbitrary ragdoll human do cool animations to track arbitrary, well, what seemed like arbitrary physical move as a skateboard, I got, it's animating backwards and the human just looked ridiculous doing it. So he tried putting like a hand on it to make it like figure boarding. That didn't work. Tried a whole bunch of things. My broad idea was, oh, well, what if I put a bird on it? Because a bird is meant to look awkward when skateboarding. You don't really think of a skateboarding bird as looking cool and in control and clearly in command of the mo of what's happening moment to moment. It's just more about, again, vibes and cuteness. So I started there, and it took a long, really, really long time to make his code base, like, good. And I had to rip a ton of it out. Like, you know, prototypes are always... You throw at 90% of the work anyways, but that doesn't make the prototype useless since it's, it gives you a starting point. But by starting at birds, then we started to work forwards for, well, what environment are the birds skateboarding around in? At the very beginning, it was going to be a, just a pure sandbox game with no story mode, which meant it was less about finding a space that could be used in a uh, like a mission and more about just finding cool spaces that made sense for birds. So you start by setting scale, and the scale was all based on fingerboards. And then figuring out, well, okay, if I'm skating or something that feels like a quarter pipe at this scale, well, what is that something necessarily going to be? And what things are around that size? And that's how I ended up doing magazines. Since magazines, it turns out, work really well at that scale for an actual magazine size for doing a vert ramp, which is a ramp that has a vertical part of the stop at the top instead of just a ramp that starts before it goes vertical. <clears throat> and we're kind of working backwards from there, or we're working forwards from there again, you come to, okay, well, skateboarding around a bed is cool. Skateboarding around a ping pong table feels about right. Well, okay, I want a space that's around the size of Warehouse from Tony Hawk 1. What does that translate to in real, actual terms? 
okay, I want this elevated skate park area. What the heck can this elevated skate park area be sitting on and still be feel correct for the space? Because if you try to do a space like this, but you uh, you play it fast and lose with scale, it starts to get really dreamy and vague really quickly, and it kind of falls apart as an aesthetic. By sticking to it, you start to get that vibe, whatever the hell you want to call it, that was important to making the game work. I'm there's just so much to go with on that. It's it's, <laughs> it's wild to me. Um, one of the questions that came in uh, from listener Dano uh, had to do with the style of skating was does there a preference between vert skating versus street skating and let me also say no clue what that means <laughs> so uh street skating is flatline well there's flatlines there's street and there's vert flatlines is uh if you've ever seen mullen uh or if you've ever seen uh if, if you google rodney mullen on bath salts you'll find the other person you've probably seen more recently i forget his actual name he's a very good skater Calling him Rodney Mullen on Bath Salts is kind of insulting. What he does is fantastic. It's worth Googling to find his actual skate videos, not just his trick skate videos where he's using broken boards. He's a really good skater. There's also a Japanese contemporary. I always forget his name, but you can find him by starting at Rodney Mullen on Bath Salts. The Japanese skater. I have to interrupt only to say I Googled Rodney Mullen on Bath Salts. Because I was so flabbergasted, and I have no clue what I'm looking at, but this is wild. Every listener should do this now. Oh, yeah, it's great. And if you find the Japanese contemporary of Rodney Mullen on Bath Salts, again, I don't remember his name, but if you search around, you'll find it. He's another flatland skater who does more uh, artistic. I, I don't know what you, how you define him, but like uh, Rodney Mullen on Bath Salts is like one half of an evolved Rodney Mullen, and the Japanese skater is like the other half of Rodney Mullen involved. And it's really cool to watch them side by side. I don't think they actually skate together, but you know what I mean? So that's a good primer on what cool flatlands skating looks like. Uh, street skating is grinds primarily, well, grinds and small ramps. It's kind of skating that you can actually do on the street, which means you're working with trick elements that aren't usually traditional ramps. At the absolute most, you're going to find a half pipe or an actual pipe with like a literal culvert to skate on or a drainage ditch or that kind of thing. Those tricks tend to be um, line-based. You're looking for a cool series of tricks you, tricks or elements you can link together to make some cool-looking motion. A lot of stair steps. Uh, sorry, a lot of stair sets. Um, yeah, like if you just Google street skating, you'll see what they what that listener meant pretty quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. Vert skating is the kind of stuff you see at X Games or really what you see mostly when you look at Tony Hawk's actual skating lately, which is... Uh, the style of ramp where there's the extremely large half pipe and then a vert surface above that, which means that when a skater flies out of a vert ramp, they go naturally back into the vert ramp despite getting very, very, very high. If you mm. try to get that high, well, if you try to get that high out of a regular quarter pipe, first of all, you die. You just hit the end and like fly over the back of the ramp and burn out. It would not be good. <laughs> but also, uh, if you tried to fly out of a regular uh, half pipe that way, you tend to tumble and you would actually miss the ramp on your way back down, which is, I mean, that is one way of getting out of a half pipe. You just tumble out slightly and then you land on the, uh, the stand at the top. Anyways, as far as, um, and uh, by the way, vert skating tends to be defined by like really long grabs, twists, uh, the, the kind of stuff you think of Tony Hawk, the person doing, that's mostly vert skating. Now, as far as what skatebird is, skatebird tends to fit somewhere between vert and street like uh, classic uh, Tony Hawk games, mm-hmm. generally. Which is to say, there are a lot of vert ramps, there are a lot of ramps in general, and there's a heavy focus on getting extremely and, frankly, quite unrealistic air out of those ramps. Which we can do, partly because you're a little bird, and having a little bird that does a little flappies kind of masks how odd it otherwise seems that you're getting this much air out of that little ramp. And that means that you're doing a lot of grabs and a lot of kickflips, well, a lot of flip tricks. There is some flatlines, like there's a couple of manuals you can do. We don't have manual tricks just because, I don't know, I don't think manual tricks are that interesting. Like, they're interesting in a combo-based game like Tony Hawk, where it really doesn't matter what tricks you're doing so long as you're linking a bunch of them together. Tony Hawk difficulty is more about, uh, it's really close to DDR in terms of having a series of button inputs that you must nail precisely in order to do something impressive. Whereas what I'm going for more is vibes and skating that feels more like uh, more like the skating you do with your friends, which 
you're, you're probably not skating vert with your friends, but like it's a little more permissive. It's a little more playful. It's a little more, I want to do this. And I want to go over and do this. And then I want to go over and do this instead of having to find connection points that let you do all of these elements without breaking stride. The, we use a, uh, instead of having a combo system that requires you to nail each trick one after another after another with precise button inputs, we use a combo meter, which is just so long as you get to the next element or do the next trick before this meter runs out, hey, you're good, which makes it a lot easier to bridge empty spaces. Tony Hawk had flatlands because, well, aside from a manual, there was no way of spanning wide open gaps. So you needed a bunch of smaller tricks that you could mash out in series to get you from point A to point B over the areas that uh, didn't have anything to trick on. And the reason for that was later Tony Hawk games got more and more spread out because you tended to go faster and you were skating in more, I don't wanna say realistic spaces, but less cluttered spaces, which tended to have less elements to interact with. So you needed flatland skating to kind of fill that space. The way we've designed is we've gone more for the combo meter, which gives us similar leeway for having larger spaces that aren't, aren't too cluttered, which is important for our aesthetic. But also it's just, it's uh, less less fiddly with your fans. There's less uh, less button mashing just to get from point A to point B and, and feel cool, hopefully. So we're trying to have a little bit lower skill ceiling by being less arcade. Does that, that, make that answers your question? It does. And the difficulty is something that I kind of wanted to wrap our conversation up with. How how did you go about deciding just how approachable the game should be for somebody that's trying to, you know, have a Tony Hawk like experience, which you said the combo system isn't, isn't nearly like versus just relaxing and skating around. Like where's the balance there? So the combo system is not unlike Tony Hawk. Like you, you still get the large list of trick names to the left and you're still linking an absurd number of tricks and you're still getting absurd numbers of points and you're still controlling it the same way. It's just mm -hmm. that by easing up on the having to link them precisely, there's just a combo meter. As so long as you get it to get your next trick within the combo meter, you're good. And it only, the combo meter only goes down if you're skating around and you're not manually. Like it just, it's a little more permissive than Tony Hawk was. It's trying to be pushed a little bit more in the direction of EA skate as far as mixture of ease of button controls, Tony Hawk, but a little more permissive and physical like skate. Now, as far as how to hit nail the difficulty, well, when you start with a game that's little skateboarding birds, you can't make it hard. Like you can, but you're probably going to have an audience mismatch there really quickly. So if you start there, you tend to probably want to make a game that's less hardcore, holy crap, only for Tony Hawk fans and more. Mm -hmm. This is probably going to be someone's first skate game. Like even ignoring audience mismatch. The last Tony Hawk game, ignoring the recent one, which I guess they're just going to abandon. Like they they got rid of the team that made it, so we're not we're not even going to get Tony Hawk Three HD, which sucks. But mm. anyways, all of that to the side. Um, that one oddity, apparently aside, there haven't been any Tony Hawk games for two decades, something like that. So your odds of finding someone in the wild that have played a Tony Hawk game to begin with are quite low, unless it's again you're targeting that really narrow niche. So even ignoring the audience thing you're probably going to get someone who hasn't played a Tony Hawk game before. And then even, and then you add on there the casual bird cuteness thing. It's really unlikely you're going to get randomly get someone who has played a Tony Hawk game before. So you kind of have to treat it as someone's first introduction to the series. And then since you're not building on top of Tony Hawk specifically, you can ground in a more casual, permissive, accessible space that's hopefully a little more playful and a little more uh, vibey then Tony Hawk started. Because again, Tony Hawk grounded back in the 90s on PS1 era, and that was a very different gaming environment than it is today. So what you gotta kinda do is make a game that is like Tony Hawk, and obviously calls back to that gameplay for people that haven't played one of these in 20 years, but maybe they play one as a kid, but it needs to play like they remember, not like it actually did, since the reality of the play was really technical and hyper-focused, and they haven't done this in 20 years, they don't have the muscle, they don't have the muscle memory anymore. So you, you kind of have to walk that line. But yeah, that's the, the gist. Well, I think a lot of people have a lot of things to look forward to when it comes to skateboard, skating fans, casual fans, everywhere in between new skating fans, which I'm excited to, to uh, see approach there. The game at the time of this recording, not out yet, but will likely be available once everyone is hearing this. Uh, please, Megan, let people know where they can find uh, skateboard on what platforms and, and direct them to any socials you'd like them to check out 
Well, Skatebird is available on September 16th on Xbox. It's on Game Pass if you happen to have Game Pass. It's also on Windows 10 Store if you have Game Pass on there. It's, it's the same thing. We are also on Switch. We are on Desktop. On Desktop, we're going to be on Steam, on Itch, and we'll also be on Amazon Luna. So in the, the cloud, air quotes, mm -hmm. whatever devices Amazon Luna is on, I guess, work. I, I don't know what those are really, other than a PC, but I'm sure they're out there. You probably know. So yeah, those are your options. It will be $19.99 on release. It is single player. There will be a 10% launch discount, I believe, on all platforms. Uh, probably higher on Xbox if you have Game Pass because there's that weird Game Pass gives you extra bonus. I don't know how it works. You'll see. And uh, yeah, please pick it out, at, pick it up, or try it. Uh, check us out on Twitter at uh, well, check me out on Twitter at GlassBottomMeg. Um, you can also go to the website if you want, which is skateburb, B-I-R-B, rocks, skate.burb.rocks, if you want. But, like, nobody goes to websites anymore, so, <laughs> you know, you'll find it. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, Megan Fox, founder of Glass Bottom, Bottom Studios, thank you so much for being here and have a, uh, a fantastic launch. We wish you the absolute best. Thank you very much. Thank you.